All right, good morning, everybody. I'm really excited to be in worship with you this morning as we start this new series. If I haven't met you yet, I see some new faces. I'm still new here and trying to get to know everybody's name. So I'm Shay Ryanga. I am blessed to be one of the pastors here, and I am thrilled to be with you this morning as we kick off what the Bible doesn't say. What the Bible doesn't say. So as, as we think about that sermon series title, and, and the video, part of what I want to be sensitive to is what some of those phrases uh, represent for some of us. That for many of us, is we've maybe inherited some of these sayings or, and we're not really sure. We've maybe always assumed they were in scripture, but we're not really sure. Um, the reason we, we receive or we reiterate some of those sayings is because we want to help. We don't want to hurt. We want to provide hope. Um, we sometimes don't know what to say, and we were inherited some of this, and so we don't know what to say, so we say um, some of these things that we've been handed. So I'm, I'm really sensitive to, to some of these things because I don't want to necessarily say that they're just flat out dead wrong for us, but maybe they're more like half-truths. They, really, they don't really say the whole truth. And before we get to what the Bible doesn't say as we set up this series, I think it's really important to talk a little bit about what the Bible actually is. Because I think part of why we get some sayings that the Bible doesn't say is because we've inherited scripture. And I don't know, I don't know how you were brought up, but, but if you were brought up at all like me, you know, I was given this book and it was like, Shay, are you making sure you're reading your Bible? And I, I, wasn't ever, I wasn't ever taught specifically, well, like, well, what is it exactly? And so I, you know, I do, I do my best to read and follow it. I knew it's, it's God's word in some sense, but, but didn't have a, a lot of tools to approach scripture. And so I think it's important for us to diagnose the problem a little bit. We got to talk about what scripture, what the Bible actually is. And so to start that, I want to say something about what the Bible isn't, that the Bible isn't an answer book to all of our conceivable questions. It isn't that. Another way of maybe saying it, it isn't a fundamental category by which we gain knowledge. It is certainly a way we gain knowledge. But it's not like sense experience or our ability to reason. And I think for many of us, I know for me and, and a lot of my friends growing up, especially the people I went to college with, they inherited the Bible as a kind of an answer book for any kind of question that comes up in life. So, so what's, what's the Bible have to say about that. And I think we get the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. And sometimes what we say the Bible says, we may be doing a good job and being very faithful interpreters and applying correctly. But uh, sometimes when we say what the Bible says, we're not really saying what the Bible says. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so how how do we get there? How is that a problem that we have to deal with? I want to talk, I want to talk a little bit about that this morning. But first, when we talk about uh, interpreting Scripture and how to apply Scripture, uh, Medea can say this a little bit better than I can. So let's, let's watch this with the volume up with what Medea has to say. You yes. Christians hear me quoting all these cliches that somebody told you, you got to read the Bible, honey, read the Bible. You got to know which scripture to use for which situation. Mm. There's another scripture that is more appropriate for this situation. Okay, thank the you. The Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. So That means if somebody has done something to you and you've been redeemed by the Lord, you can beat them down and say so. Come get it. <laughs> 
so for the record, because this is being recorded, um, Jesus says, turn the other cheek. And we don't have time to get into what Jesus means by that exactly, but we, we know personal retaliation is part of what Jesus means by turn the other cheek. So let me just say that for the record. But that's, that's a more exaggerated, humorous way of getting at some of the problems that we deal with, that maybe we haphazardly, we don't intentionally mean to be haphazard with scripture, but because we don't really know how to approach it, because we haven't been given the tools, we end up not wanting to misinterpret, not wanting to misapply, but sometimes we might do that. And Medea's attempt there was to quote the 107th Psalm which she actually does there. That was the King James version of the 107th Psalm, verse two. Um, But of course, doesn't quite interpret that or apply that very faithfully. So how does the Bible become to be this kind of answer book for us? I wanna do a little digging in history and I apologize if you hate history. We're, we're gonna get into the weeds a little bit about how the Bible gets to us. So if we, if we can diagnose that problem, then I think that'll help us as we explore what the Bible doesn't say and focus on what the Bible actually is and what the Bible actually does say for us as as we walk faithfully with the Lord. So we start with how does, how was scripture even brought about? So when we think of the early church in the New Testament, the, the Holy Scripture was a given to a certain extent because, because the Old Testament, what we might call the Hebrew Bible, was was already in Uh, in the communities of faith. It was Jesus's scripture, right? This is the story from creation till then. It's really not a question as to what scripture is at that point. But in the early church, then there are new books that are being added to scripture as the closest, the eyewitnesses of Jesus are inspired by the Holy Spirit to respond to certain issues in their communities. And so as they write these down, these close eyewitnesses and their close associates are responding to these issues. The other communities of faith in the Christian world are taking account of this, are starting to read them in worship. As they gather, they become authoritative. And we have evidence as early as 200 AD, there's evidence that the four gospels, much of what is the New Testament is already being circulated. And so because we have evidence of that, it stands to reason that much, much, much earlier these texts are being circulated, maybe even as early as they were written and as fast as they could get out. That's how quick the authority of these texts took hold in the early church. But it actually isn't until 367, a a guy named Athanasius, the Easter letter in 367, where we get the exact list of what is the New Testament. So it's a process of how scripture forms. And when we think about what scripture says to the early church, what scripture says to the church in 1000 AD, what scripture says to the church in 1200 AD, 1300 AD, um, there's not a lot of us talking about uh, the Bible says because we don't really have access to the Bible. The interpretation is controlled for us. We're kind of told what the Bible says. We don't have copies. We can't sit alone in our room and decide for ourselves what the Bible says. It's it's controlled by the clergy. It's controlled by the church. 
And so then we fast forward to the, 15, the, the uh, 15th and 16th century and it gets a little crazy. There's a lot of change happening all at once. There's different factors happening. We've got the enlightenment happening. So we're really, really optimistic in this time period about our ability to think and reason. So we've got that. We think really highly of ourselves and our ability to think. If, if there's one thing we can characterize the enlightenment with, with, with it, it's that sort of perspective. Like we think very highly of ourselves and our ability to, to diagnose things, our ability to interpret, our ability to reason. Another thing that happens is the printing press is invented. So that's a big deal. That's a big deal. And then you got a guy, Martin Luther, that's seeing all these abuses in the Catholic church and he's starting to, to teach, you know, th this is a priesthood of all believers. We, we have access to God. We don't need someone to go before us. We don't need to have someone pray to God for us. And Luther says something again in his teaching. He, he talks about sola scriptura. Maybe you've, you've heard this before in any kind of history class or something. Sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. Scripture alone, sola scriptura. So now Luther is saying that scripture is, is the only rule for faith and practice. So we've got scripture is the only rule for faith and practice. We think really, really highly of ourselves. And now the Gutenberg Bible, the printing press is invented and we've got Bible in the German language and the language of the people. So now, for the first time, we, we start to all have our copies of Scripture. And we get to sit alone in our rooms, and we can try to figure out what it means. And if we don't have any other guidance, we could end up in some really strange places. If we start in Leviticus, if we start in Revelation, if we don't have any kind of help, you can kind of see why a town like Stephenville, Texas, and I bring Stephenville up just because I... I Spent some time in Stephenville, Texas. Uh, Stephenville, Texas, we got Stephenville represented. Yes, all right. So the green sign when I lived there a few years ago said about 17,000. What's the green sign say outside of the town now? Do we know population-wise? Is it about that? Yeah. So 15 to 20,000, we'll say, somewhere in that range. A town like Stephenville, Texas can have 30 plus Baptist churches, three Methodist churches. And the only reason it has three Methodist churches is because of division. It's because of split. It's not because we were wanting to plant a new church there. It's, there's, there's some Pentecostal churches. There's non-denominational churches. There's all kinds of churches I'm not mentioning. You get the idea. So we see the fruitfulness in the Protestant Reformation, right? But we also see we also see some of the outcome and the consequences of, of us trusting in our authority, us trusting that we can understand this ourselves. And we've seen the proliferation of division in the church in response to that. So that is a generalized, oversimplified way of, of us understanding why we may be in, inheriting some sayings and some things that the Bible doesn't necessarily say. So what does the Bible say it is? What does scripture say it is? Let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because, those you, because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. All Scripture, you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. 
all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So it turns out the Bible is much more significant than an answer book for all of our questions. Like our the Bible is God breathed. So there's a kind of reverence that we should have when we approach scripture. That it isn't meant to answer all of our questions or be a fundamental category for all of our knowledge, even though we do learn a lot from scripture. And scripture answers some of life's biggest questions like, is there a God? What's he like? What's the trajectory my life is supposed to be going? Um, what am I supposed to do? What's my meaning? What's my purpose? Like some of the biggest questions are definitely answered by scripture, but it's so much more than that. It, it points to the God who made us. It points to God's story and the relationship God has with us. We see creation, we see fall, we see redemption and restoration right? It's this unfolding story of God's relationship with us. It's, it's a book that's supposed to make us wise, not just to know a bunch of things. It's supposed to make us wise for salvation, that that's what it's for. It's to train us and equip us to act in this world for every good work. That's a very different thing, I think, than, than what we've inherited sometimes when we don't examine and we don't reflect what we inherited when, when it comes to scripture. So now that we've, we've kind of glossed over and briefly oversimplified scripture and what the Bible is, and it is a brief and, and oversimplified version of things. Scripture for us, a little bit unlike Luther, is that it's a primary, it's a primary rule for our faith and for our practice. But it's not the only thing that we have. Like we don't interpret, here's where Luther kind of went off is we don't interpret scripture in a vacuum. So we need to be guided by the Holy Spirit when we approach scripture. We need to appreciate the context of the authority of the church. And so it's so important for us to study scripture together. Helps us not go off the rails and maybe interpret some, some pretty wild things that we read in scripture. We bring our mind and our ability to reason to bear. As Jesus tells us, we're called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we, we bring our experience, our experience of God and our experience with the world. As we shift now to our first saying, our first saying is God wants you to be happy. That's the first saying we're going to discuss is God wants you to be happy. So I've heard people say, you know, I ended a marriage because God wants me to be happy. I've quit a job because God wants me to be happy. Or I stay away from certain family members because God wants me to be happy. God wants me to be happy. And by happiness, I think, you know, what's included in that is maybe a lot of things. But our general just cultural notions of happiness, sort of like smooth sailing, a general ease through life, like no drama, no wrong turns, no conflict. Life's supposed to go fairly well. I'm supposed to feel good and positive about where I'm at, about where life is. Um, we'll want to definitely be safe for sure. 
So I think all of those things are baked in. All of those things or some of those things are baked in to our notion of happiness. And in Scripture... It's probably derived from a few places, but John 10.10 is at least one place where we, we probably, where this phrase in part comes from. And it's the second part of John 10.10. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen John 10.10 quoted, just forget the first part, but I, Jesus is saying, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. That's it. Like when I see this verse quoted, it's usually just the second part. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. And if we're not paying attention to context and, and all of those things, we can, we can impose what full life is, right? Whatever my desire is, whatever I want in life, um, we're going to say that that's what Jesus means when he says a full life, that he's come to give me a full life or in some translations, an abundant life life. But as we read through the gospel of John, that really isn't the case. In that first part of the verse, even the thief, the great adversary, the devil comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full is the full context. And that life that he's referring to is none other than Jesus's own life, the life that leads to the cross. And yet still this week in many, many churches, and if we flip on the TV, it will be preached in some version, in some form, God wants you to be happy. And another way of saying that is kind of the health and wealth and the prosperity gospel that's out there, that, that if you just are obedient enough and you follow God and you give to the church, then you will be blessed in a material way in this life, a hundredfold. And one of the passages was like the one we used last week with the rich young ruler, that if, you, if your family, if your community doesn't understand that you need to sacrifice for the gospel and, and you need to take that step and, and go in a direction where they can't follow you, then Jesus says, in this life, you will be blessed a hundredfold. And the list that he lists includes persecutions. He says, you can count on persecutions to be part of the blessings. And he lists a bunch of people as if, you know, you may have to leave this community, these friends, this family, if they can't follow, if they don't understand the truth, but you will be given a new family. So it's even a far stretch to sort of connect the dots and even interpret that as this material wealth of blessing in this life. C.S. Lewis says at the very beginning of mere Christianity, that God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it's not there. There is no such thing. And of course, though, it's difficult for us culturally because it's wrapped up, it's in our declaration of independence, the pursuit of happiness. And, and yet if we run through scripture, if we run through scripture and we start in Genesis and we see how God creates us for fellowship with him and we disobey 
and the consequences of that, what, what happens is now it's, it's really difficult to work and there's pain in childbearing, but we're not abandoned. God can, continues to pursue us and lead us to a promised land. And as we're moving towards the promised land, we want what our neighbors have and we compare and we want a king like them. So, so we don't get the promised land that God wants us to get. We fast forward to Jesus. Jesus often will say, in this world, you will have trouble. You will have trouble in this world. The world may even hate you on account of me. But take heart, I've overcome the world. It's okay if the world hates you because it hated me first. So that sounds great, doesn't it? So if the world hates us, that's sort of a sign of our discipleship and our faithfulness. That sounds awesome. And then we end scripture with John's radical, crazy vision in Revelation. And we see the end. It's a good end, but it's full of great tribulation. Very little of, of our salvation history is marked with extended period of time of peace and prosperity in the material sense. So if God doesn't want us to have happiness in the ways we talk about happiness, what does he want us to have? Let's, let's look here at Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26 to 28. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. So I know it's the time of the year right now for some returns and exchanges. Have we had to return and exchange any, any gifts? Some things may not fit. Um, some of the electronics may not work, or you just don't have the strength to wear the sweater with the big bird on it. For our Home Alone fans in the, in the house. You, we got some returns and exchanges, right? Um, Lindsay Kay is not a morning person. She uh, has a funny shirt that says, Namaste in bed. Namaste in bed. And uh, we're different in that way. I'm, I'm up. I'm very much aware of my surroundings in the morning. I'm a morning person. And she, not so much. Not really bright and cheery right, in the, right when she wakes up. And happened to roll out of bed and step on an iPad. And just nice spiderweb screen shattered, right? And it's an older, we've had it for a while. It wasn't like this was a brand new gift um, that we just received. But in doing the research, do, do, do we replace the screen? Do we buy a new iPad? Cost analysis, trying to figure that out. And I think eventually it will, uh, it'll be better for us if we replace the iPad eventually. You know, some things, some things can't be repaired. Some things need to be replaced. And God's word to Israel is a repair job isn't going to cut it. You need a new heart. You need a heart of flesh. You need a new spirit. And when we think about what repentance means for us, repentance isn't about repair. Repentance is about replacement. And oh, is it costly to replace things. But that's what Israel needs and that's what we might need to remove those parts in us and those things in our lives that are keeping us 
from fellowship with God. That the, the lasting happiness that God has for us is always communion with him. That there is no happiness apart from God's self. And so what needs to be removed because the pursuit of happiness threatens our life's significance? The pursuit of happiness threatens our life's significance because this pursuit of happiness is so temporary. It's a quick fix. We put duct tape and we try to patch things together. We don't want to face the conflict or the tension or, or deal with it. So we pretend like it doesn't exist. We want to be happy and it doesn't make us happy to face these things head on. So we patch and we try to do the bare minimum. Like my papa used to say, just, just put a butterfly bandage on it. It'll be, it'll be good. Sometimes I shave my head and I should have got stitches many times. We just put a butterfly bandage on it. You'll be, you'll be fine, right? The pursuit of happiness threatens our life's significance because that's a temporal mission and we're created for an eternal mission. We're created for eternal life with God. And even that great vision of, of, of revelation at the end it isn't a repaired version of this world that comes. It's a new heaven and a new earth. We are called to be a new creation, a new creation. Some things in our lives may have to be replaced and isn't it costly to replace things, but that's what's needed. That's what God's calling us to do. So as we think about this new year, we asked the question last week, what's the question my life's answering thinking about this new year? afresh. And, and as we think about the new year and where we're at, how is it with your soul? How is it with your soul? How is your walk with the Lord? Are there some things in your life that need to be replaced so that you can get back to fellowship, so that you can, like David, chase after God's own heart? And maybe it's, we're, we're relying on people too much and, and there's ways in which we're relying on others for things that we've got to remove. We've got to get rid of that. Or maybe we have some old habits or these regular meetings that aren't life-giving, that are just sucking the life out of us and there's things that need to be replaced or maybe, in fact, we need to ask God for a new heart. We've become a little cold. Our heart is like stone. And you know, the thing about scripture, one of the beautiful things about scripture is scripture helps diagnose the condition of our heart. So it's really, really important for us to stay in God's word. Because the writer of Hebrews says this, chapter four, verse 13, for the word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So scripture is really good at helping us diagnose the condition of our heart, whether or not we need to ask God for a new heart for a new heart. And you know, whatever it is that we need to replace, scripture's a really good thing to replace that thing with. It's a really good thing to replace whatever needs to be replaced with. It's a really good thing. And so for many of us, we may need to ask God for a new heart. Lord, give us a clean heart, one where the joy of our salvation is restored. Please pray with me.
Holy God, your word says you are quick to give us what we ask in faith. And Lord, in the pursuit of happiness, our lives are so often in vain. And the significance of our lives is threatened. But Lord, when we chase after your heart, our lives are consequential. They have meaning and they have an impact under the roofs of our own houses, in our workplaces, in our world, Lord. Our lives make a difference when we are in communion with you. So God, help us identify those things that we need to remove, that we need to ask you to take out of our lives so that we can hear your voice, so that we can see what you've called us to do, Lord. Lord, and help your word be a part of that. Help, help your word in a new way this year be part of our routine so that we become wise. We become equipped for every good work that you've called us to do because we know, we know you've called us to make a difference in this world. And that in pursuing you, we are living into your kingdom that we get a foretaste of now. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen.